You want to take a Bible in hand and turn to James chapter 2. We'll finish the chapter this evening. We'll look at verses 14 through 26. If you're using one of the Bibles from the Purack, it's on page 1012. Page 1012, James Epistle, the second chapter. Now, one of the things that I've enjoyed in our study of James is that uh, as he introduces new themes, you see previous themes interwoven. And this is a new section, but it's also drawing on things that he has said in previous passages. Um, So, for instance, uh, the book opens with understanding the purpose of trials. What's one of the purposes of trials we learn in James chapter 1? It's the maturing of faith. And here we see something of the maturing of faith in James chapter 2 using the illustration of Abraham. Um, You can call many examples that we see correspondence between what we have here and what we've already considered in James. Another one, very important one to our passage. You remember there in James chapter 1 from a couple weeks ago, uh, James implores his hearers to not just be hearers. The readers are to receive the Word of God and be doers of the Word. And you see this teased out even more in our passage. As you came into uh, the beginning of chapter 2, where Dave Hinckley preached last week, the first 13 verses, uh, he is condemning those who would show favoritism and a lack of concern for those without social status, uh, showing favoritism especially to the rich. And here, that's one of the illustrations that James picks up in verses uh, 14 through 26 as well. You'll see many things. I would encourage you, read the book of James over and over again. Um, At times when you pick it up, it feels strange for the New Testament, but the more you study and meditate it, you see how these themes work together and you see the flow of his letter, the message that James, the brother of our Lord, had. Well, before we specifically look at our verses tonight, let's ask for the Lord's help in prayer. So please join me in prayer. Lord, it is our desire, Heavenly Father, that our thoughts, our words, and our deeds would bring you glory. And so we ask that you would help us to grow in grace this evening through the reading and preaching of your word. That you would pour your spirit out upon us. That the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you and beneficial for those gathered in worship. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of God from James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14 through the end of the chapter. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself It does not have works. If it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, 
You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Amen. And that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May He write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Well, it's become the question that people run to when they come to this passage. Is James and Paul in conflict? Here they're using similar words, particularly here, the word in Greek, dikaio, to justify, but it seems like they're using it in totally different ways. Well, I hope to see that they're not uh, in this passage tonight. That's uh, part of the labor, but we won't spend too much time considering that. I think it's most fruitful for us just to expound the passage and see it as it is. But let me suggest this to you. If James and Paul were in conflict, we know enough, enough about the Apostle Paul that he would have said something. Remember the book of Galatians? He confronts Peter, an apostle, the rock, and tells him, you're wrong, you're mistaken about the nature of the gospel and how you're applying it and living it out in your life in this matter. And so we know that though James did not live as long as Paul, that they did overlap. They certainly were both present at the Acts 15 Jerusalem Council. Paul would have clarified confronted if they were in conflict. But they're not. The Holy Spirit inspired both texts. And what may appear as contradictions or not, it may be helpful to consider this. They're asking different questions. And so they're answering different questions. Quite often when Paul is speaking of similar terms, He's asking the question, how is the sinner justified before God? That's Paul's question. James seems to be wanting to answer a different question. How does the sinner know that they have saving faith? You understand the difference between the questions. One, how is the sinner justified before God? The other, if we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, how, what does saving faith look like? And this is what James is laying out for us here. 
So i got four headings for us this evening. In verses 14 through 17, I want us just to see that James points out two types of faith. Two types of faith. Then in verses 18 through 19, we see James respond to an objection in verses 18 and 19. And then in verses 20 through the end of the chapter, we see two biblical examples that James uses to make his point. And then I want us to close with something of some summary statements giving us a brief summary theology of saving faith and good works. That's where we'll end tonight. So first, look back. Keep your Bibles open. You'll need to keep them open this evening. James chapter 2, verse 14 and 17. Here James lays out two types of faith. He wants you to consider the nature of saving faith. Why do I say that? Well, he poses a question. If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? So there are the two faiths. There is one faith that says, I have faith, but there's no corresponding works. And so what's implied is that there is another sort of faith, a faith that has corresponding works. And so the question is very important to see in that second part of the verse, can that faith, which faith is he in reference to? He's saying, can a faith that does not produce works save? Is it saving? And so he there goes on to give an illustration. That's what we have in verses 15 through 16. If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's a very striking illustration. It's, it should be a shocking illustration. He's saying, someone walked into church tonight. It's a church member. And they have, something has occurred in their life and they've, their home's burnt down. Their home burnt down yesterday. All they have left are the pajamas on their back. And someone walked into URC, a church member, in that condition. And we just said, we're going to pray for you. We're going to add it to the prayer chain. Be warmed and filled. Be on your way. It's a, that would be an obnoxious response. It would be a cold-hearted response. And James looks at his audience in the eye and he says, those who might be tempted to saying that it's enough just to claim to have faith. He says, this is what it's like. Now, it's very important that we, we understand the, the particulars of the, the illustration he gives. He, he's very clear. A brother or a sister has an immediate presenting need that is obvious. He says, well, those who've believed the gospel, you don't just see this person as a neighbor in need, you see them as more than that, as part of the family of God. 
someone who's believed that they have entered into union with Christ, then this person isn't just someone who is now finds himself in need of worldly goods. This is your family member. You wouldn't respond to someone in the family of God that way. But it's a failure. It's a failure of what? It's a failure to keep what James identified in verse 8 as he called the royal law, that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. It's a failure to obey. It's a form of antinomianism, meaning nomos, law, meaning it is opposed to the law of love. Because the law of love would be moved to action. The word that is translated works throughout our translation, it's a good translation to, to call it works. It also includes the concept of action. To someone who sees a Christian in need and isn't compelled to action, what does that tell you about what they really believe about the gospel and their place in the family of God? It's a failure to obey. It's also a tremendous failure to do so with a cloak of spirituality. That's what's really stinging about this illustration, isn't it? That the person looks at the person in need and says a benediction of sorts. Be warmed and filled. It's an empty benediction. It's a failure to love. It's an example of faith by itself. We should see that faith in Christ produces love for His people. Now, turn in your Bibles, if you're using a P-Rack, turn to Galatians chapter 5. If you're using one of the URC Bibles, it's on page 975. Galatians chapter 5. beginning in verse 6. Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You pose this illustration to the Apostle Paul, and he said, what would love do? It would respond. There would be actions. There would be works that would demonstrate this person's love. Go further in Galatians 5, the verse 13. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You should love your neighbor as yourself. So if we do put Paul and James in conversation, the conversation is, is on the same page here. Faith works through love. That, brothers, you are free from the law and doing good works to merit your salvation. But what is that freedom for? It's freedom now to serve. It's freedom now to walk in obedience 
You're not free from the duty to obey. Faith by itself, faith that does not produce works of love, is not saving faith. That's James' first point, but he builds the argument even further. He goes in verses 18 to 19, and he, he throws in an imaginary objection. This is the communication uh, style or uh, tool here is that of the diatribe. Is that he imagines an opponent that would look at him and say, yeah, but, or that's what you think, this is what I think. So, back to James chapter 2. Verse 18, you see the imaginary opponent makes a statement. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Here someone is making the claim that that's nice, James. You work out your Christian discipleship by doing works of love. Well, I'll work it out by faith. It's almost like they're saying, you know what? We all have our place in the body. Some of us serve, and some of us, we, we're, we're into just doctrine. We think we make assertions, we make claims, we work on and formulating what we think and believe. So some have faith, some have works. And James says they're inseparable. Well, biblical faith, genuine faith, saving faith, are to be considered inseparable. And so he presses his opponent, he responds to them. There in verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. What is he telling his imaginary opponent there? He's saying, you make statements about God. Here he's referencing Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, God, your God is one. When he says the demons can affirm that, they don't have saving faith, but when they affirm that, they shudder. They tremble. They are in fear. He's saying even the, the faith you're claiming to have that has no corresponding transformation of your life with no evidence in your life, that's not even as good as the faith that demons have. Because demons don't believe in a saving way, but yet they can affirm that God is one and they are terrified of Him to the point of shuddering. And he's saying, look, your faith without works is less than the faith of demons. Saving faith and works are inseparable. Works give evidence of saving faith. You show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So the, he builds his argument even further. Having answered that objection, he then gives two biblical examples. The examples of Abraham and Rahab. Beginning in verse 21, he comes to Abraham. In verse 20, he says, do you want to be shown? He said, I'm going to demonstrate this for you. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
Now here it is. Here is the word justified, to justify, the chaos. Now, rightfully so, we are very conversant in understanding justification in terms of God declaring sinners innocent. It's the verdict of innocence declared over sinners who trust in Christ. It's God counting the sinner righteous in Christ by grace through faith. And what makes it challenging as we study the Scriptures is that when we come to here in James and when we go to Paul, they both appeal to Abraham to make their points. But we need to remember that they're answering different questions as they appeal to Abraham. And one of the things that we do see from Scripture is that the word for justify, dikaio, is used in a couple ways. Paul pulls out the meaning of justification by faith alone, but also someone could be justified in terms of righteousness vindicated, or quite simply, someone is vindicated. So, Jesus used this of himself in Matthew eleven nineteen, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now think about what is happening there. There is an accusation about Jesus and his character and what he is doing, but he is not claiming that he will be declared righteous by imputed righteousness. He's saying, no, my actions will be vindicated to show that I am righteous. We're here with Abraham. There's something of his faith that is being justified. That works, if you would, are vindicating his claim to faith. It's saying that his faith is now being proven to be genuine. So there in verse 22, there, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. That the man of faith matured in faith. He grew in faith. And what was the growth in that faith? Well, it was that there was evidence presented of what we can't observe because we can't see the heart. Now, to be sure, there are those who could do some outward conformity and could present themselves as people who are obedient to God. But those who are in a relationship with God will have the corresponding evidences in their life. Now, Abraham didn't always have the evidence. He was justified upon believing God's promise. But in between the first time he believed and Genesis chapter 22, when God asked him to offer up Isaac, he doesn't always seem like a man of faith, does he? No. The very thing that God promised, he tries to take into his own hands. And he doesn't wait for God to give him a son through Sarah, and he takes his Hagar and produces Ishmael. Well, if you look at the evidence of his life, at that snapshot, it does not look like a man who believes and trusts God. But he has believed. 
He has trust God. He is a man who has been gifted righteousness and eventually saving faith in his life produces evidence to that. Here, it's in when his faith is tested. And what do we see? A faith that has matured. Look at verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith of love. You could easily say it this way. By works, a person is shown to be justified. But it's the end of that verse that does put our antennas up and we say, okay, doesn't this seem exactly like the opposite of our five solas? What does he mean by not by faith alone? Well, in the context of the passage, it's that faith by itself. Faith by itself, which is empty words and has no fruit of life transformation, has no fruit of love for God, love for neighbor, no fruit of love for God's people. That's what he means by faith and alone. What's being condemned is a faith that does nothing. Now, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the chapter on justification clarifies this very point for us, citing James 2 and Galatians 5. Listen. Faith thus, receiving and resting on Christ and His righteousness, is alone the instrument of justification. Yet, it is not alone in the person justified. Where did the Westminster theologians get that from? Well, they got it here. That it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces. And is no dead faith, once again citing the very language from James chapter 2 here, but worketh by love. Faith by itself, that's not accompanied by any saving graces, by no fruit of the Spirit, is not saving faith. Faith that does not love is not saving faith. That's the example from the life of Abraham. But then James does something that's brilliant. Because you and I might say, I'm no Abraham. I'm, I'm, that's sure. Abraham, he's someone who, when God asked him to give up his son, he's a much greater man of faith than, than I could ever be. And so, of course, he has the he walks through that test of obedience when his faith is tested and comes out on the other end. So what does James do? He goes from, from the heights to Rahab, almost the complete opposite of Abraham, a prostitute, immoral, someone who is disreputable, someone who's at the low of society. But what happened with Rahab? She heard about the mighty acts of God and how he led his people out of Egypt. And she believed. And when spies from Israel showed up at her doorstep, she sprung into action. Her faith became evident. It was no mere empty profession. 
but it had corresponding actions and fruit. James is making the point that everyone who has saving faith, saving faith will have corresponding works. So to close, let's consider a theology of saving faith and good works. This is all taken from the Westminster Confession, chapter 11, chapter 14, and chapter 16. Now, I would encourage you to go read these chapters and see the proof text where these are cited in Scripture. Let's begin. we got nine of them. So nine points of theology of saving faith and good works. Number one, we do not require good works to offer someone the gospel. That's the mistake of of hyper-Calvinism that says that, well, the elect will be saved and those who are saved will bear fruit of repentance. And so we wait to see if someone shows fruit of repentance before we offer them Christ. Not the case. What James is referencing here is post-conversion, not pre-conversion. So we do not require good works to offer the gospel. Westminster Confession of Faith 14.2, the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. Number two, to be clear, the good works do not contribute any merit towards our justification. They can't. It is the mistake of the Roman Catholic Church that sees that salvation is synergistic, the cooperation between having faith and works coming together, and then we contribute to our righteousness. That's not what James is claiming here. There is no supererogation. There is no, Jesus got your account back to zero, and now you're filling it up with good works to merit salvation. Not the case at all. Number three, good works require the Spirit of God, and they do not happen apart from the new birth. The ability to do good works is not in and of ourselves, but is wholly from the Spirit of Christ. So just as we can't even take credit for the faith that believes in the gospel, we don't take credit for our good works as well. Number four, our good works are always imperfect until glorification. As they proceed from the Holy Spirit, they are good. But as they come through us, they are defiled. Because we are in the process of sanctification, progressively becoming more and more like Christ. And so until the day when we see Him face to face and we are changed into where that we can no longer sin, our good works are imperfect. So therefore, number five, our good works are received by God covered by the blood of Jesus. They are accepted through Christ. Number six, saving faith believes the word of the gospel and the rest of God's word. And therefore, seeks to obey the commands of Scripture. 
Saving faith believes the message of Christ's life, death, and resurrection of gifted righteousness to the sinner, and it believes all the other things that the Bible says and commands, and then seeks to obey. It seeks to not just be hearers, but to be doers. So, in chapter 14 of the Confession of Saving Faith, by this faith, a Christian believes to be true whatever is revealed in the Word, for the authority of God Himself speaking therein, and then acted differently upon that which each particular passage containeth, yielding obedience to commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. Number seven, how do we define good works? Well, it is not left to the imagination of you and I to define what a good work is. It is what is laid out in the Scripture. God's Word defines what is the good works that we are to seek to pursue and to produce in our lives. And to be clear, this has been the main thrust, I think, of the passage, that good works are evidence. Number eight, good works are evidence. They are fruit and evidence of a true and lively faith. And so number nine, we close with what are the many purposes of good works? Well, as we seek to obey God's commands, it's one way that we show our thankfulness to God. It is also a way that we strengthen our assurance. And Peter says that we are to make our calling and our election sure. It is a way that we edify one another. It is a way that we adorn the profession of the gospel. It is a way to stop the mouths of adversaries. And lastly, it is to glorify God. That Jesus said, they'll see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You're a saint. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone created in Christ Jesus for good works that your heavenly Father has prepared for you. Amen? Let us ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, Forgive us if we have claimed faith that has not been faith, if it's been mere empty profession, if it's been by itself. Lord, we give thanks that all of salvation from start to finish is from you, and it comes to us as a gift. And so the very works that are produced by your people, it is you that are working in us. So help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is your spirit that is at work in our hearts and lives. And may it be evident, may it be a testimony. May those who walk alongside us, inside the church and outside the church, may it be evident that we are those who trust you, that we are those who fear you, that we are those who believe that Jesus is Lord 
and our life gives little glimmers of light and evidence and fruit that He truly is our Lord. And may that evidence grow and become more and more evident, pointing others to Christ and giving you glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.